Romans chapter 3, if you have a copy of God's Word or have a cell phone that has it on it or an iPod, whatever, iPad, I guess is what they call it, uh, go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 3, we're continuing the series, Royal Invitation. And today we're looking at the closing arguments and verdict against the sinner. Now, the subtitle of this sounds very dreary, I know. Uh, But the good part about what we're dealing with today is we're closing out the first part of Romans. Romans is, uh, when it was originally written, was not written with verses and chapters. But one thing that we do know about the book of Romans is it has very distinct sections in it. And Paul wrote it in such a way. And so we're coming to the conclusion of the part that we entitled guilt. And thank goodness we're going to be transitioning out of that into the good part of the section of Romans, which is grace. And so we're, we're transitioning this morning out of guilt into grace. Now, as I said, the first section of Romans is to show why we need Jesus, why we need to be saved. We have looked at the fact that God reveals himself to all people through nature, uh, a person's conscience, and to the Jews through the law. As a result... Everyone is accountable to God, and no one is without excuse as it relates to their sin and their guilt. If you will, go ahead and look at the outline there. If you have it there in your passport, look at the introduction. Paul, as a prosecuting attorney, makes the case against humanity that all stand guilty before a holy God. This would include the rebellious, and we saw their story and. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. It would also include the respectable, those who say, I'm of good moral character. That would be uh, Romans chapter 2, the first part. And even the religious that we saw last week in chapter 2. Paul in chapter 1 talks about the rebellious people who turn their nose up to God, doing their own thing, getting into all kinds of perversion, and live as though there is no God. Paul's very clear to say, uh, in conclusion of that, that they're guilty before God. In chapter 2, as I said, he moves on to those who are good moral people. At least they think that in their own mind. And uh, they would be considered respectable people. And they're really no better off than the rebellious. Then, last week, I think some people may have even been shocked the way Paul dealt with this. He addresses the religious people. It's those who think rules and regulations and rituals are enough to get them into heaven. Yet Paul says, still guilty. Still guilty. In the passage today, Paul does what any good attorney would do. When an attorney comes to the conclusion of a case, he usually does three things. And Paul's going to do all three of these things in chapter 3. So the first thing he's going to do today is he, he anticipates the questions that are in the minds of the jurors. And he answers them in advance. He gets into the mind of the jury. And basically in verses 1 through 9, he's basically going to bring up questions and he's going to answer them. Questions that they may have themselves. Secondly, he brings in supporting evidence, some testimonies, in this case, quotes, in this case, quotes from the Old Testament in support of what he is presenting against humanity. He does that in verses 10 through 18. Lastly, he's going to summarize his conclusion and basically ask for a verdict. And we'll see that in verses 19 and 20. 
So look there on your outline. Let's begin. Let's jump right into the first part of what Paul's doing here. Look at the questions. Paul answers all possible objections. So Paul is basically, and you can see it right there in these passages, Paul asks the question, then gives the answer. Now, the background for these questions are found in the previous chapters. He's basically talked about, presented the case to each of these three categories. And now he's going to answer some questions that may still be in their mind. So the first question is in regarding the Jews' uniqueness. The Jews' uniqueness. So look at the question here in Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Now Paul is saying, some of you are thinking, why be religious? If working hard and going to church and being circumcised and keeping the law and the Jewish holidays won't get me into heaven, then why should I even do it? Is there any advantage to being a Jew over a pagan if we're all found guilty before God? And so Paul's bringing that question out. And I think that it's a question that could be modernized to today and say, okay, I'm a church member. I'm there every time the doors open. I'm, I'm trying to keep the law. I'm doing the best I can here. And, and, and you mean to tell me that effort is not enough? It doesn't make me acceptable to God? You know what Paul is basically saying? No, it doesn't. And, and, and of course, the answer is found in Jesus. We all know that, right? It's not in the religious habits it's not in ritual. It's not in regulation. It's in the personal relationship. And that's what Paul's addressing here. He's talking to the Jew in the first century, but in the 21st century, he could be talking about us who are at church every Sunday. That would be the religious. Look at the answer in verse 2. He says, much in every way. Now, again, he's talking to the Jews, but he says this, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Basically saying, yeah, there is something unique about the Jew. There's something unique about those who are religious. And especially as it relates to the Christian faith or the Jewish faith. There is something unique about both of them. But here's what he's doing. The Greek word for chiefly means of primary importance. When Paul says, first of all, or chiefly in verse 2, it sounds like he's going to give a whole list of advantages there is to being a Jew or being a religious person. But here he only gives one. He says the greatest thing the Jews had going for them was that God had given them his word. The same could be true of us. You do know we have his word, right? You do know that we make every attempt here at this church to put his word forward. That's the reason we try to preach verse by verse. That's the reason we let God's word speak for itself. That's the reason we have teachers and connection leaders who are, who are there to facilitate or to teach us outside of this venue that we try to use. It's because we believe it's important that since we have God's word, that we teach God's word. And you see right here, you see Paul is basically saying, yeah, the greatest thing that you have, the greatest advantage you have is the fact you have his word. Whether we're talking about the Jew or the Christian. Now, just as God entrusted his word to the Jew, he also entrusted it to us. The Jews preserved. Here's what you need to understand about the first century Jew. They preserved God's word, but they did not share God's word. Many of them didn't even live it. They wanted others to be accountable for it, but many of them didn't even live it. The same could be said about many Christians today. A second question Paul raises is regarding God's faithfulness. 
He, he's basically looking at humanity, and then he's going to look at God for these next three questions. And he's going to basically set up like a straw argument, strong, a straw man there. And he's going to try to, through the questions, and he's going to knock it down. And that's what he does here. So look at uh, the question, Romans 3. Look at verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now, here's what we need to understand. But here's what he's saying. Did the Jews keep their part of the bargain with God? What do you think the answer is? No, they did not. They were not keeping the bargain that they had with God. If this is the case, can God break his promises with them? Since they were not faithful to God, can God break off his promises to them? Of course, the answer is found in verse 4. What is the answer? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. If man chooses to be a liar, if man chooses to be unfaithful, let that be them. But that's not God. God is faithful. God is true. He will do as he says. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. You see, in the Bible, there are two kinds of promises. And basically, the idea of promises is, how many of you have heard of the term covenant? You heard of covenant? It's basically promises. And there are two kinds of covenants, two kinds of promises in the Old Testament. There were what was called conditional covenants or promises and unconditional promises or covenants. Now, let me give you an example of a conditional. A conditional promise are promises that say, if you do this, then I'm going to do this. Probably one of the most familiar that we have in the Old Testament is in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Look what it says here on the screen. If my people, which are called by what? My name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Do you see the condition here? There's a condition, and if that condition is followed, what will God do? He promises to come through. So it's conditional. That's a conditional covenant. Did you know that uh, many of the covenants in the Old Testament were unconditional? It meant that God was going to do it whether man did something or not. And, and there were several there in Scripture. There's an Abrahamic. God gave Abraham a covenant. It was unconditional. God gave David a covenant. It was unconditional. But here, I want you to look at this. These unconditional promises... The Bible is full of promises that are totally unconditional whether we do what is right or not. There are the promises that Paul was talking about here. How about the promise of a Messiah? Did the Jews deserve that Messiah? No, to prove they didn't deserve him, what did they do to the Messiah? They killed him. They took him out. How about the second coming of the Messiah? Here's probably a better question for us today. Do we deserve the second coming? No, we don't deserve it. But he's coming back. It's unconditional. The, the Messiah is coming. Unconditional. He's coming. Is he going to come again? Yes, he's coming again. Unconditional. He's coming back. God's unconditional promises are based. Listen to this. This is very careful. You need to listen to this carefully. God's unconditional promises or covenants are based on his character, not on man's performance. God cannot be blamed for man's guilt and unfaithfulness because he continues to be faithful and true. He continues to be that, whether man is or not. Here's the third question that Paul's raising here. It's regarding God's righteousness. 
Y'all, that is, that is a big topic in God's word, righteousness. Big topic. And it really was to Paul. So here's the question in verse 5. But if our righteousness demonstrates the, uh, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Now look at what you see in parentheses there. Many of you have this. He, Paul is basically saying, I speak as a man. You know what he's basically saying there? I'm phrasing these questions in such a way that, that I'm, I'm showing you your misguided rationalization. He's saying, I'm speaking as a man. I'm not, this is not God's word. This is not the way God operates. But I'm speaking as you would ask the question. And basically, he's proving their misguided rationalizations. Here's a paraphrase of what's being said here. But some say our breaking faith with God is good. Our sins serve as, good, as a good purpose. For people will notice how good God is when they see how bad we are. Is it fair then for him to punish us when our sins are helping him? That is the way some people talk. Now, think about that. Is that even logical? Is that even, that's not even logical. But basically, he, that's, he's, he's proposing, he's bringing forth the possible questions that they have. And then he answers them. Look here in verse 6. Here's the answer. Certainly not. He couldn't be saying, are you crazy in this line of thinking? For, how, then, for then how will God judge the world? Now think of this. If God does not have any standards and he lets everyone get away with everything, then how can God be fair if he does not have any standards? If sin results in doing good, then God cannot judge anyone. Because everyone would be doing good every time they sinned. That's the rationale they're trying to use here. Now, this line of reasoning, listen, does not represent God nor his character. You see, that's the whole problem. The whole problem with man or humanity is this. We're constantly trying to outthink God. We're constantly rationalizing, shaping our thoughts about God in our own image. How many of you know that to be true? All you got to do is listen to people who talk in which they're talking contrary things to the gospel. I mean, you hear it everywhere. It's all in our world today. It's in our society. And so you have the fact that it's here. And, and basically what God is doing, when God presents himself in these covenants and, and these promises and the fact that he must judge sin, what he's doing there is he's revealing who he is. He's revealing his character. A fourth question that Paul raises is regarding God's truthfulness. Look at the question here in verse 7. For if the truth of God has increased through my life to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Now, this is kind of an extension of the last argument. Paul is saying, let's take your logic a step further. All the bad things I do should make God happy. Because it gives him the chance to show his grace. Then why would God condemn me? And if the truth of God has, increased, has been increased through my sin, then why am I still judged? Now some of you are listening to this and you're sitting there thinking, what were these people thinking? Did you know that we're all capable of these crazy kind of thoughts? You ever tried to rationalize your sin? Have you ever done it? Let's just be honest. Anybody ever tried to rationalize their sin? 
We've, we've been there. Did you know to God it sounds just as ridiculous as what Paul's saying here that they were thinking? And, and, and y'all, we, we're guilty of this. So he gives the answer. In verse 8, he says, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Now let's unhash this. This is basically saying that it does not matter what you do as long as you believe the right thing. There are a lot of people going to church, believing the right thing, but their lifestyles do not match. They live for the Lord on Sunday, then live for the devil the rest of the week. Paul was saying, you don't want to go out and sin more, thinking you are helping God by proving he is gracious. Now think of this. Many think that God, and I've heard people I've heard people think this way. I've actually heard them say things along these lines. Many think that God is some old grandfather kind of character out there. You ever, you ever had a grandfather who you could get away with anything? I had one of those grandfathers. I hung the moon. I was the firstborn on both sides of the family. Can you imagine what I received in that deal? And I did. I had a grandfather. I mean, he, I mean, it's just like, it, I, I was his joy. I knew that. I knew how to play that. <laughs> when my mother came after me with a switch, yes, she used a switch. Sometimes it was a switch I had to go get off the tree myself. Um, but when she came after me, I remember one time in particular, I went running to my grandfather. I'm sitting in his lap. He's covering me up, and she's still whipping both of us. <laughs> now, that's a beautiful scene. Of what Christ's done on our behalf, I guess, if you really want to get into that. But let me just say this. It, it, God is not some grandfather up there who's saying, oh, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Let me just hold you in your sin. No, that, that's, not, that's not God. God's got to judge that sin. He has to judge that sin. Again, what he's revealing to us here is his character. He is holy. That demands he judge sin. He can't operate contrary to who he is. That's, that's good theolo- a good theological principle would you find in God's word. He cannot act contrary to who he is. So many pe- people think of God in this way, that he's a pushover. I've had some people say something like this. I know the choice that I'm making is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway because I know that God will forgive me. Before you carry out these thoughts, this is what God's word says about that. Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That comes with it too. It comes with it. Think of this, y'all. Everything that God does, everything that God commands, everything that God will judge, listen, is born out of his character. He is faithful. Therefore, he will do what he has promised. He is righteous. He can only accept that which is righteous. That's the reason the death of Christ was so important. So the only way we're accepted is through righteousness because it's his character. It's who he is. Did we get to him through our righteousness? Hopefully I've proven to you in the last couple weeks. No. He came by way of Jesus' righteousness. That's what we identify with. He is truth. Therefore, listen, God cannot misrepresent himself. I want you to look back at the end of verse 8. He says... If you are going to look at all this and you're going to create these arguments, let me just tell you, they lead to nothing. But let me tell you this. Their condemnation is just. 
He's basically saying, if that's your line of thought and that's where you're going with these thoughts and you're going to rationalize God and misrepresent Him and His character, listen, the condemnation that comes is just. That's what he's saying. The last question Paul raises is regarding humanity's sinfulness. He's back to that subject. Look at verse 9. Here's the question. What then? Are we better than they? Paul was saying as Jews, are we better than others? He could be saying to us in the 21st century, you who think you are religious, do you think you're better than others? He very easily could be saying that. Some people think from verse 1 that the Jews have an advantage. Paul does not say they, they have an advantage. However, he does say they have an advantage. However, he does not say they are better. But they do have an advantage. You know why they have an advantage? Because they have God's word. They've been entrusted God's word. So here's the answer in the second part of verse 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Basically what Paul could be saying, if he preached the messages that we've preached here over the last three weeks, he, he would say this, did you not hear me over the last three weeks? Have I not proven to you that every one of us are guilty before God? We're all guilty. It's where we find ourselves. Paul concludes his questioning impossible oppositions with the acknowledgement that all are guilty of their sin and that their rationalizations will not be considered at this trial. Now he gives the evidence. He moves from the possible questions to the evidence. Paul supports uh, submits supporting testimony. Look at how he does it here in verse 10. Look at the very, as it is written. You know what he's literally going to do? Paul goes into section 2, which are verses 10 through 18, where he brings evidence and supporting testimony against the sinner. He's going to bring this from the Old Testament. He's basically saying, I'm going to take the words that were entrusted to you to prove to you that you're guilty before God. And that's exactly what he does. If you go and study verses 10 through 18, you know what he does? He's inserting Old Testament scripture. He's saying, hey, if I haven't proven it to you, let's take the word that's been entrusted to you. Let's take the word that many of you guys have memorized. Let's take the word that you should be living out. And let's just insert it right here in this argument. I'm going to bring the evidence to the table. And he does a good job with it. First of all, look on your outline, the character in question. He's going to question their character. So look at verse 10. He says, as it is written, again, this is Old Testament evidence, there is none righteous, no, not one. It's the basic idea, the basic idea is that none are acceptable to God and are hopeless in making themselves acceptable. Listen to Jesus' words. Sermon on the Mount. Many say, greatest message ever preached. These were some of the words. Matthew 5, 48. He says, Jesus told them, he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know what he was basically saying? If you're going to go by the means of, of works, of developing your own righteousness, guess what? The only thing God will accept, you remember us talking about this last week? The only thing he will accept as far as a grade on righteousness is the grade 100, perfection. And, and, and guess what? Paul is bringing us to the conclusion that none of us are there. None of us are there. But he brings the question. He said, he's basically saying, that's God's standard. Keep the law. If you say you're going to let your works, got to make a 100. 
See, our attempt to become perfect in righteousness is unachievable. Go ahead and put that picture up here, if you will. Suppose a bridge is wiped out by a flood. Let's suppose there was a bridge there, okay? Uh, the river below is 100, let's say it's 100 yards wide. So people begin to attempt to jump across to the other side of the river. Now, if you're looking at this picture, and let's just say that some took a running jump and they jumped out 10 feet. Have they made it? No. How about some that jumped out and they went 15 feet? Are they going to make it? No. How about 20 feet? Surely that is enough, right? Not even close. Not even close. None of them, no, not one, will make it. The rebellious may make it five feet. The respectable may jump out 10 feet. The religious may jump out 20 feet. But none make it. They all will fall to their doom. You know what he's creating here? This is a hopeless situation when it comes to your own righteousness. This is what Paul was trying to communicate here. Now look at verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. What's he saying here? No one seems to understand that this is their condition. Now what would keep a person from understanding this is their condition? Here's, here's what they've done. And we've, we've read this in scripture up to this point. They, what they do is they suppress the truth. You remember us talking about that? Some of them literally change the truth with their rationalizations. Some will go as far as denying that they've done anything wrong because of what? Because of their pride. So when he says this phrase, there is none who understands, it's those who are trusting in their rationalizations. It's those who are trusting in those things that, create, that are created through pride. There are none who seek after God. Verse 12, they have all turned aside. You know what it literally means? You know what that phrase literally means when it says they all turn aside? They basically have, it literally means they've chosen the wrong way. They've chosen the wrong way. What did Jesus once say? I am the way. Remember him saying that? You know what the psalmist said about us? We like sheep have gone astray. We've gone the wrong way. Each of us have turned to our own way. It goes on. It says as a result of this, they've all turned aside. It goes on. They have together become unprofitable. They've become useless. And, and really, let me tell you, that's the phraseology that you'll find if you go back to the Old Testament. It, it literally means they've become unacceptable. They can't be used by a holy God. And so it says they become unprofitable. They become useless. There is none who does good. No, not one. There's no one who can make themselves acceptable. That is the language here. No one hits the mark. No one seeks after God. No one cares what God thinks. These verses describe, listen, the hopeless character of humanity. Now, this statement summarizes these verses. Here, here's, listen to this statement. They run in their hopelessness away from their only hope. They run in their hopelessness away from their only hope. That's the picture that we have here. Next, Paul submits supporting testimony. He now moves to the conduct in question, not just the character. Now, let me say this about a person's character will be revealed 
in their conversations and in their conduct. How many of you have lived long enough to see that? Yeah, you see that. Their character is revealed in their conversation and in their conduct. Look at what he says in verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Now, that which is in their hearts is always displayed, listen, in their conduct, which supports Paul's case against humanity. Next, Paul submits supporting testimony. And the cause here is stated. What would bring about what we just read? He bottom lines it. He says, here's, here's the bottom line problem with it all. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God. Now think about that. Who is God? Creator of the world. Who is God? Judge. Who is God? The one capable, listen, of sending us to eternal condemnation. That's who God is. Isn't it amazing how we can live? And I'm not just talking about the pagans and sinners out there outside. I'm talking about, isn't it amazing how some of us can live, listen, as if there is no God? Some of our actions carry us there. Y'all, listen, a healthy perspective of life is a healthy perspective of, of fearing God. Not living under the fear, but understanding why the fear should be there. Listen, listen, how did, how did he describe, how's he going to describe God later? He's Abba Father. He's Abba Father. It's the most intimate of personal relationships. We are sons and daughters. We are heirs of the king. We have all that. It's all in place for us, but... When we're living this life and we start realizing we need to be, really, the, the picture there is of fear is really, we need to be in all of who God is. We're not in all of Him anymore. We as a nation, we're not in all of God. Proverbs chapter 1 says this, The fear of the Lord, many of you know this, is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom in, some, in one place. It gets us to where we need to be. Paul starts with questions and answers. Then he moves to the evidence by presenting the supporting testimony of Scripture. Now he, he moves to his concluding remarks. Paul now summarizes God's case. The last two verses summarize Paul's case that he's been building against humanity in the first three chapters of Romans. And how do we know that's the terminology here? Because you're going to see words like now and therefore. That's all, he's bringing things to a conclusion. So, look on your outline. God gave the law for two reasons. To make us aware of our sin. To make us aware of our sin. Now, now here's what we need to understand about the law. The law, God put in place to make us aware of something. Can you guess what that may be? The law is in place to make us aware of what? Our guilt and our sin. It's there for that reason. It's really spelled out. If you want to study this in, in its entirety, study the book of Galatians. 
But here it is. He summarizes in verse 19. So God gave the law for two reasons. The first, to make us aware of our sins. So look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That means this. We, God's standard is there. That's what the law was. It's right there in front of us. We can't say anything against it because God himself put it in place. But more, more importantly, we're guilty before it. Next, the second reason God gave the law was to direct us to the one who can save us. Now, verse 20 is becoming very pivotal. We're moving out from under this whole idea of what Paul was saying. You're guilty before God. You're guilty before God. He's transitioning us to the point where we're realizing our need for a Savior. And so look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, listen, by keeping the law, no flesh, no one in, in who we are in and of ourselves will be justified. You remember when I told you what the word justified means? None of us will be made acceptable to God in our flesh. Doing it on our own, keeping all the rules, keeping all the rituals, making sure that uh, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, making sure everything is perfect. None of us will get there. It goes on. No flesh will be justified in God's sight. Now, isn't it important? Isn't it amazing that he puts there in God's sight? You know why he put that there? Because there's a lot of people out there believing they're keeping the law. But the way they're looking at it is through the lens of just what they see. And here's what they're doing. They're comparing themselves against other people. Paul basically, if you really look at his testimony of what he used to be, he was a Pharisee who was attempting to be perfected by his own works. And Paul was easily one of those who would look around and say, Hey, I'm, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. See, it can be done. But Paul was looking at the wrong people in his old life, wasn't he? We can't, listen, we can look at all the other people we want to and try to justify ourselves and say, hey, we're, we're at least a lot better than what we're seeing on TV right now. We're better than any politician that's out there. We're better than this. It's not going to get you anywhere because it's not based on that. It's based on God's sight. For by the law is the, is the knowledge of sin. That's where we realize we're sinful. So, let me tell you this. Let's look at it this way. The law is like a mirror. James tells us that. The book of James tells us this. Now, let me show you something about the law. A mirror can show you how dirty your face is. But it cannot be used to clean you up. How many of you, uh, how many of you have ever looked at a mirror right there and think, Wow, a lot has changed. <laughs> you ever done that? I did that recently. But you really want to see where a lot's changed? Tina's got one of them magnifying mirrors things. You ever looked in one of them? That will horrify you when you look in one of them things. There's hair there you didn't know about. There's, there's pores that, oh my goodness, there's all kinds of stuff. There's wrinkles you never knew you could see. It's all sitting right there. And you see, what, what, what do we see here? What Paul is trying to describe, it's more than just looking at a mirror that we walk by. It's the idea of one of those powerful mirrors where we look in 
and everything that we see there. Has anyone ever looked into one of those mirrors and thought to themselves, wow, look at that. None of us, even the most beautiful people in the world have never said that. But yet, you know what? The law, the law is there. It's a magnified mirror that reveals what's truly there. But you know what? That's, you know what that mirror really is? It's God's word. But you know what we do to say, hey, we're not doing too bad. We start looking at our neighbors. We start looking at those we run into at the grocery store. We start looking at all these other people and we think, man, we're looking pretty good. At least our hair's straight. I mean, I would say at least we have hair, but that would offend a lot of you. And so I'm not going to say that. But anyway, uh, I mean, we would go on and on and on. And we'd make all the comparisons. He's like, no, no, no. Look at the right thing. The mirror. Listen, you don't take the mirror. Can you imagine me taking that mirror and rubbing it on my face to try to get clean? It doesn't work that way. The mirror is used to point us to the water. So it is with the law. The law cannot clean us up. But it can lead us to the one who told the adulterous woman that he could give her. Jesus said, I can give you living water that is everlasting. Do you know what he was really telling her? The adulterous woman. Jesus was saying that her guilt and deepest need could not be compensated or satisfied by anything this world offers. She couldn't even pull it off herself. It had to come from another world. (laughs) Who's the only person that we know of came from another world? His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Listen, he, 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 when he showed up, listen, he fulfilled what the law was talking about. He became the mirror. Do you know that? Do you realize that? The law used to be the mirror. Jesus shows up. He fulfilled the law. He becomes the mirror. Everything that we hold ourselves up against, the Bible says, needs to be held up against Jesus because he was perfection. He's the magnified mirror. And so when we look into his word, when we look into who he is and the character of who he is and all that, what do you see? You see all kinds of blemishes. Listen, that if it weren't a part, if it were not for the provision that that same perfected Jesus made on our behalf, our situation would be hopeless. Here's the application. The final verdict. Humanity is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, what is your response to the verdict? Will you continue to attempt to defend your sin or justify your sin? Or will you accept, I love this, the plea deal made available by God through Jesus Christ? For those of you who don't know what a plea deal is, listen, this is what it is. A plea deal is an, agreement, is an agreement in a case between the prosecutor and the defendant, whereby the defendant agrees to plead guilty to their guilt in return for some concession from the prosecutor. In the case of your guilt before God, this plea deal means this, complete immunity. How many of you think that's a pretty good deal? I think my response, listen, my response to the verdict, the verdict is I'm guilty. My response is to settle out of court, to take the plea deal, which is complete immunity. What's what's immunity? Exemption, listen, from criminal prosecution, legal liability, and punishment. All that's taken away. 
through the provision of Christ. So let me go back to the illustration. Show this next picture. There is a way across that does not lead to destruction. Listen, that bridge, if you were to put it in a spiritual context of what we looked at before, you remember all those people jumping, trying to get to the other side? Did any of them make it? Will any of us make it? Absolutely not. The only way there is through a bridge. Guess who built the bridge? Jesus. Jesus. He's the only, he's the only hope to getting to the side of hope. <laughs> and that's how we cross over. Now, let me say this. I want to close with this. Next week, we're going to, if you want to do some homework, Romans 3, verses 21 through 31, we're going to be looking at that. We're finally getting to the good news. We're finally getting there. No more talk about perversion. No more talk. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. Now we get to spend several chapters about the grace. And I'll be in a better mood coming here on Sunday morning trying to tell you. And I'm just going to tell you. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you. That's what it all is. That's what he offers. That our guilt can be traded for his grace. That's what he's offering. Would you stand to your feet? Father, we just come to you right now and. Lord, I, I know most of the people in this room. I, I know that many of us in this room would probably not classify ourselves as full-out rebellious. That many of us would say that we could look around and see so many situations are so much worse than we could ever imagine. There may be some people in this room who would say they feel like they're at least respectable. They attempt to have good moral character. And Lord, I understand that. And I think I see that at times in our church family. And there's probably many others here that think, well, I'm religious. I love God. I know of God. And I'm trying to do my best. Father, help them to realize that every bit of that comes up short. It's only through the provision of Jesus Christ and through that relationship that he's offering that will get us to the other side. Father, if there's someone here today that's never trusted you for, the, for that plea deal, that's never trusted you to be the bridge in which they can leave the, the shame of their guilt and cross over to a, to a place of hope because of grace, Father, I pray that you'll lead them to that here today. So if there's someone here today that doesn't know you in the intimate way that you desire to know them, today would be the day they make that decision. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we just pray you be with us during this time of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.